Oh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but out in the out in the foyer, in the well, in the foyer, uh, I don't know why we got in the outer room. There, there's actually this bench. You see it? It's pretty cool. Now, let me tell you what that's for. Uh, if because because everybody's like, "This is great. I'm going to sit in it." Uh, if there is. We don't have a mother's room here. We, uh, when we moved in, there's not really a place to do a mother's room. And sometimes I know some moms, your babies get a little fussy and things like that. And you're like, you don't know where to go and what to do. So we actually put that out there for you so that you have a place that you can go. And, and if you, obviously, you never want to miss the message. <laughs> Just Sometimes you may want to. But uh, it, it'll be on the screens out there and stuff like that. So if there's someone sitting there and you're a mom with a baby and you go like, oh, my baby's fussy, but I don't want... You can be like, get out of the seat. That's my seat. So it's the only time that I will say you can say that's my seat. Okay, so there you go. You're, you're welcome. But really, that's why we did it. Because we don't have a mother's room here yet. So we thought we'd try and do something that could actually help you guys out. We're going to get some... Toys to put in the bench out there for you, and or out out in the the thing that's in the middle for you to put, so your kids can have stuff to play with and things like that. So just I want you to know that's there for you. We did it for you. Okay. you says yes. You're welcome. There you go. Right. <laughs> the person without a holding the baby is this neat, but that's great. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Another thing I want to tell you about is October 28th is our next is our pumpkin killing. Okay, so I want you to put that on your calendars. If it's not, uh, you can invite your neighbors on all the communion tables throughout the room. There are little maps, so you maps so you know where you so you know where you're going. Uh, don't show up today because we're not going to be there today. It's October 28th. That's why it's in big letters. But you can grab one so you kind of know where you're going. You can invite some of your neighbors or friends to come. We're going to have plenty of uh, pumpkins for them to carve. We're going to be shooting pumpkins out of cannons. we got two cannons this year, so we're going to have, like, dueling cannons. It's going to be like, you know, anything I say is going to be non-politically correct, so never mind. We're going to have, like, two cannons. It's going to be amazing. Uh, Jason's been talking about trying to find a way to get some, like, targets that we can try and shoot the targets out of the air and things like that. So... Uh, yeah, we don't know if we're going to get, but we're working on it. Okay, so uh, and and this time we're actually going to do food. And if you kind of leave before you ever got into a pumpkin killing and grab food and show it up late, we're actually going to have hot dogs and hamburgers there. If you are a vegetarian, we will have pumpkins. <laughs> if you're a vegan, don't even try the pumpkin pie because it's it's made with dairy. So there is pumpkin. I'm just. I'm all around, trying to help everybody all around. So there you go. Uh, come to Pumpkin Killing. It, it really is a great time. You can, you can come and leave when you want to come and leave, but it's 1.30 to 4 o'clock on October 28th. We've actually already gone and picked up a big load of pumpkins, so we're getting ready. I think that's what I got. Okay, so hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, hello. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Uh, and this goes along just with the sermon. Uh, in, in our gospel communities at Element right now, we're doing this series through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. And there's some other stuff with some videos and some workbooks that they're doing in there as well. But this is designed to actually go along with my message, which kind of parallels the chapter in the book that we're covering this week. That kind of hopefully expounds the chapter and goes a little bit in a different direction so you can get stuff out of the book and out of what I say on Sunday mornings. Someone pointed out in first service, it's really funny because it says, The Reason for God, Hell. <laughs> so, Okay. We'll see how this goes today, because uh, apparently that's... Anyway, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You can click on More and Then Events in Uversion, and hopefully it will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes and, and verses and questions and announcements and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? 
This is, that's what I feel. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 43. And it says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Such a happy verse to start with, right? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for being gracious and good to us. And I ask that we would be those who live in and understand that graciousness more day by day by day. And that we would be able to be those who understand the things that you've spoken about in the scriptures and sometimes things that are very hard to come to terms with, but come to it in a place where we trust you and the things that you have said that you draw us into. And so today we ask that you'd renew our hearts and minds as we, as we listen to the things that you have to say to us about a topic, especially like hell. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we, as I said, are in this series called Reason for God, based out of Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God, so it's, you know, easy to remember. Uh, the entirety of the book is really about why the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. That's more than just belief, and it's more than feelings. It is truth that has been revealed to us. It is historical, though I know if you take... Any college class, sometimes they'll want to try and convince you it's not historical. Uh, all the arguments out there that are against the historicity of the Christian faith have really been asked and answered over the last 300 years, time after time after time. And if you ever think you hear something new that's earth-shattering about Jesus or the historicity of the faith or something like that, again, it has probably been asked and answered a hundredfold. Uh, it is nothing new. No one's shocked by the question. Sometimes things gain new popularity. Uh, like the Da Vinci Code when that came out, or uh, Reza Asan wrote this book called Zealot, uh, that came out. Uh, but all those questions have really been asked and answered over and over and over. Now, today is going to be a little bit weird. I would say maybe a bit heavy, a little perplexing, because we're going to talk about hell. Okay? Uh, in the book, in chapter 5, I recommend that you read chapter 5 in the book. I think the second half of the chapter is much better than the first half, but that's just me. Uh, Keller will talk about how the doctrine of hell isn't as bizarre as modern hearers think that it is. It's actually not only practical, but logical. So again, read the chapter in the book. And I'm going to, as I said, parallel kind of beside that. And in our culture, I know divine judgment is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines, so it's why people have questions about it. What I'm going to do with you today is I'm going to help you to understand hell maybe in a way that you've never heard it before. Uh, I'm going to relate it to heaven and life with God and all these things kind of coming together. And so if you have a preconceived idea of what you think I'm going to say about hell, set it aside. Right? And let's just kind of talk about how I think the scriptures actually talk about it. Because many scriptures, many, many churches never want to address what the scriptures say about hell. But again, we're element. We're always trying to whittle down our numbers and be offensive. So hey... <laughs> Here we go. Why not? A couple years ago, uh, I did this. I did this series called "The Stupid Summer," and it was all about dumb things that Christians believe that aren't true. One of the ones I did in that series are "All People Go to a Better Place," where I kind of dealt with this a bit. Uh, Jesus and the Scriptures are clear: the wicked don't find themselves in a better place. They don't. Uh, hell is real. Forever is a long time. Uh, but I would also say that hell is not Satan's kingdom, where he runs around and has all kind of fun. Hell is probably Satan's worst nightmare, and it's not just reserved for that wicked person you know. It could also be for that sweet old lady next door who had never heard a fly, but also never wanted a relationship with God whatsoever, where no one wanted to step into the restorative grace of who Jesus is. And I think that goes for the sincere practitioner of any religion that doesn't believe in what Jesus has done for us to bring us into relationship with God. And no matter how much we want it to be different, when God and us disagree, God is always right for good reason. That's why he's God. And what you have to understand as we walk through this and talk about it, that there is a reality to what hell is. 
And I think as we understand it, we'll come to understand why it is, what it is, and how we so often don't talk about it in the right ways. Because hell is not the stick that God chases you into heaven with. In true reality, when we, a couple weeks ago when we talked about salvation, salvation is about life with God. And that starts here and now and can go on into eternity. In hell, it can be described as the exact opposite. Eternal life without God. Like, do you want to live without God? Hell is without Him forever. And for us, this is really hard to grasp in the culture we come from. The exclusivity of Christ, the reality of hell, the need for salvation, all strikes our culture as offensive. And we have this widespread sort of denial of a place called hell or judgment. And really, that's nowhere more evident when you deal with death. Like, when somebody dies, if you ever question, like, their eternal destiny... I mean, don't do that at a funeral or anything like that because you'd be crucified. But if you ever want to talk about it, it's like nobody really wants to deal with it. And so we're always looking for ways to justify that someone is in this better place. I mean, if someone loved Jesus, who are we to argue, right? But for those who don't love Jesus, wanted nothing to do with them, uh, spiritually fruitless their entire life, we search for something, anything. There's got to be a Jesus moment somewhere. They're three years old and they tripped and fell and they screamed out, Jesus, oh, look, they prayed. They're safely in a better place. We're just, we're looking for anything. And if we can't find that fleeting moment, we're like, oh, well, they were a good person, or, oh, they, they were very spiritual. We latch on to anything that we can because what we've done is we've made hell into this place that people get sent to because they're terrible, and we cease to understand what God has done to rescue us to bring us into life with him. And if we can't find anything virtuous about somebody, we latch on to, well, they had a good heart. You know what that means? They're a total butthole, but I don't know what else to say about them, right? So that's, that, that's what we say. Oh, they got sucked into the wrong crowd. It's all mental gymnastics. Trying to offer someone peace based on lies is never good. Like, this is football season, and if you have, like, your favorite quarterback, and they maybe break their leg, and the doctors got them in the, in the, in the room, and they're like, hey, you know, you'll be able to play Sunday. It's going to be great. They might feel better for an hour, but when they try and stand on that leg, they're not going to be able to, and it's not going to be good, right? Because lies are never good. Lies never help us. And so when we talk about hell, we have to talk about the misunderstanding we've had with it and what the reality of it is. Eternal destiny is not determined by where we say or where we think somebody went. It's in God's hands. So a few weeks ago, when we talked about the exclusivity of Jesus, I quoted you where Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus doesn't dance around it. And when we talk about a way to God, what we do is we say, heaven. And we think it's this place that's the eternal pleasure factory. And heaven is whatever you want, whatever you have deemed the most pleasurable thing, that's what you get. And, of course, everybody wants to go there to the pleasure factory. And God's the big meaning that keeps everybody out of that. Oh, my goodness, isn't God just terrible? And if that's... Seriously, think about this. Someone's idea of heaven could be another person's hell. C.S. Lewis wrote this. A heaven for mosquitoes and a hell for men could very conveniently be combined. Yes? So heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, we talked about it is life and relationship with God. That's what it points to. We, again, want to make heaven into this thing we can achieve by believing the right thing or doing the right things. But Jesus reminds us it's about relationship. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are words of relationship. Coming to the Father, restored relationship with God. And so I told you the most important thing to remember about heaven is it is life uninterrupted with God. That God has been extending himself to people since he first made us and we ran away. God has chased us down and called us back in. Man, because we really don't want life with him. We keep running away. You know what we really want? Hell. That's what we want. 
We keep running towards hell. And where heaven and hell, I believe, are both places, the reality of them is much different than we think. Again, if heaven is life with God, hell would be life without him. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, all the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Meaning, we run away from God and we lock the door because we want to keep him out. And so when we talked about exclusivity, I tried to get you to see that we are the ones who exclude God. He doesn't exclude us. God has done everything he can to bring us back into relationship with him again. God offers us grace and goodness and life, and we exclude him. From the beginning of the world, God has offered us life with him, and no one wanted it. We ran towards hell. And it is God who has gone out to draw people back in. And I do believe that that hell is real, but it centers itself on life without God. And that is one of the most important things we have to understand about it. You're not living your life trying to balance a scale between good deeds and bad deeds and good deeds get you into heaven and bad deeds send you to hell. We are offered life with God every single day. And it starts here and now. And so when Jesus talks about hell, he is not playing on people's fear. He was speaking of present and future realities. So today, I'm kind of like a good friend. That's going to come alongside you and bring you true news that we should all be aware of. Like if you had a teenager who came up to you and they said, I have found my life's passion. It is cigarettes. Right. And they're like, and, and I'm young and I'm healthy and I want to smoke it morning and night every single day. It's going to be amazing. I love sucking nicotine into my lungs. You would hopefully warn them. If you do that, you will most likely get the cancer. Right. So so be careful about that. Or if they said, I just got my driver's license and I have found my passion. It is driving really fast with no seat belt, eating all my meals, ordered through a clown head behind the wheel and texting when I do it. You would hopefully warn them that's a good way to get yourself killed or killed somebody else. So don't do it. So today what I'm saying is buckle up. We're going to go, okay? I want to talk about hell. Uh, there is this massive, unspoken, non-voted-on collusion to dismiss hell without giving it really serious, I would say, adult thought. And I think it's crazy because the majority of people on this planet believe in life after death. Some believe in heaven, some believe in hell, some believe in both. And we always want to be so fuzzy about it so it just sits out there in the ether somewhere we don't, and I don't think that's a wise position. Now, should we be afraid of hell? Uh, I would say yes and no. It kind of depends how we look at it. I like how John Ortberg says this. He says, we should be afraid of becoming a lost soul. And what he means when he writes about that is we should be afraid of choosing or drifting or growing to be the people here that don't want a relationship with God now that could go on into eternity. Uh, something that we become so self-centered that it consumes us forever. At Element, we like to talk about redemption and grace and the good news of the gospel and life. We believe the good news is not scary news. It's good news. We like to laugh. But I also believe sometimes when you have the wrong idea about something, especially hell, it can produce the wrong type of fear. So I want to correct that. And I don't want you to walk out of here today and think, oh, hell's not really that bad. I don't need to worry about it. The whole idea of this is to give her a greater sense of urgency. And how we talk about grace and hope and life and, and goodness. And how we relate the good news, not just to the world around us, but also to how we think about things. So what I want you to do is open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 28. It's in the Old Testament. I swear to you, it is a book. Okay, So just turn there. You'll be able to find it. Uh, if you've ever wondered where the Christian idea of hell comes from and how we talk about it, I'm going to show you where it comes from. People who read the Bible or don't read the Bible, they think that the Bible is like a book about morality and rules and it's like a list of good behaviors that get you into heaven and a list of bad behaviors that get you to hell. It's kind of laid out, people think, like some sort of school policy manual. You know, do good, you graduate to heaven, do bad, you graduate to, to hell forever. You know? But this is where hell comes from. In the Old Testament, there is this wicked king. His name is Ahaz. Not 
like Moby Dick, that's Ahab. Okay, but Ahaz. Ahaz. And he lived centuries before Jesus came. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 28, starting verse 2. Uh, it says, He, that's Ahaz, even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now, this is a considerable, considerable offense before God. Ahaz was a terrible king. Now, open your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. Eighty-five years later, and four kings after Ahaz comes another king, and his name is Josiah. Josiah's reign began when he was eight years old, and eventually he looks around and he sees all of the corruption. So he decides, we are going to bring back the scriptures. And he has the priests go in and take the idols out of all the temples and burns down all the false places of worship. 2 Kings 23 verse 10 then says this, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. So that's the same one from the other place. That no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And when it says defiled there, that's actually in a good way. He made it so no one could sacrifice their children in this place any longer. Okay, so let's talk about this. Okay, so you got this God called Baal or Baal, however you, however you want to say it. And if I asked you, do we worship Baal? Right? You would say, we don't worship Baal. Well, at this time, uh, Baal was like uh, the God of fortune, the God of prosperity, uh, money, like maybe in our, so do we worship Baal? Oh, of course we worship Baal in our culture. Uh, it's why today we have more malls than high schools in America. Uh, it is why more people go to the mall, not our mall, because our mall is terrible, but you know, more people go to the mall or shop each week than go to church in the United States. It is why this year more Americans will declare bankruptcy than graduate from college. Uh, it's why we work more hours than really any other nation on the planet because we worship Baal, because we love money. So how about Molech? Do we worship Molech? You're like, probably, I don't know. Okay, so uh, Molech required the sacrifice of children to appease him. I would say our nation worships Molech because when he is worshipped, parents avoid becoming parents. Uh, they avoid raising their children. Here's a screen. Watch this. I never have to look at you or talk to you. Uh, do we practice child sacrifice? I would say we do. When one out of every three conceptions ends in abortion, yeah, I, I think we do. I think parents neglect and abuse children, such as the fact that parents in America, on average, will shop six hours a week but only spend 45 minutes with their children. I say that we probably worship Molech. So these are the places that Josiah tears down. He says, we are running after these things. This, this is not good. So there would never be a place of worship again. Now, this valley of the son of Hinnom, this is in the southwest area of Jerusalem. And after Josiah destroyed it, it could be used for nothing else than a garbage dump. Everything that went there got burned because it was offensive, and it was said that that place never stopped burning. Everything they took there just kept getting burnt, and the, and the flame burned all of the time. Uh, this is, it becomes a landfill that only things that were useless, like human excrement even, went there as well. So again, the, the, the term for this place in Hebrew is Gehenam, which is, that means the Valley of Hinnom. The Greek word for this is Gehenna. The word Gehenna is the word used in the Bible most often to translate, this is where we get the word hell from, is from this word Gehenna. It is used 12 times, 11 of them by Jesus himself. Matthew 10:28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's the word Gehenna. And for these people, hearing this and seeing present spiritual reality, they would look and say, oh my goodness, because it made so much sense to them. Because sometimes when the wind's right, you can still smell Gehenna from where they were standing. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. People sometimes wonder, if God is good, and everything God creates is good, how could he ever think hell was a good idea? Uh, for me personally, you can disagree with me. Uh, this isn't a salvation issue, but I don't think hell is part of the initial creation. 
Jesus tells this parable about sheep and goats. Actually, in first service, I said sheeps, but sheep is plural of sheep, so okay. Uh, sheep and goats. And the king says to those who are righteous, Matthew 25, verse 34, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, by contrast, he says to the unrighteous, Matthew 25, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I don't know if you see the contrast, but the righteous go into the kingdom prepared from the creation of the world. Those who are cursed go into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, this eternal fire, and we'll talk about fire in just a moment, was not prepared from the beginning for people. Hell was not made originally for people. It's a response to our sin and rebellion and wanting to do life without God. Now, in reference to this imagery of this garbage dump, you ever been to the dump? Yeah, right? Smells bad. Imagine it on fire, right, all of the time. So uh, other than the smell at the dump, what can you also not get away from? Okay, birds, okay. I didn't think of that. Birds, flies, right? You ever, you ever get there? And, and like, they're like this big. I don't know. It's not a nuclear power plant, but yet their flies are this big, right? And you get in the car, and it's in there, and you can't get it out, and you roll down the window, and the wind's blowing by, and the fly's like, whoa, nope. It's like they're really strong flies, too. You can't get them out of the car. Okay, so... Flies. It, it's funny because the devil is sometimes called Beelzebub, which comes from Baal for Lord, but means Lord of the Flies. And it's chosen because God is a sense of humor. It's kind of a mocking title. One commentator says this, The day is going to come when evil's power to damage, to hurt what God loves, God's creation, is going to be gone. It's going to be quarantined. It's going to be isolated. It's going to be closed off like a garbage dump. And then the evil one will no longer be referred to as the prince of this world, as he sometimes is. He'll be called the Lord of the Flies. The Lord of the Flies. So Jesus then uses other images to refer to hell as well. Uh, it's still in Matthew 25. There's this parable that's called the wicked servant. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 30, it says, And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I've talked about this before. This darkness, it's not just dark, it's outer darkness. It's so deep, we don't even have words to define what it is. In Genesis 1-1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then the earth is formless and void. And then what does God say? Genesis 1-3, let there be light. And so light is this gift that God brings. It's almost like his first gift. And light is good, and light is life, and light is joy, and wisdom, and enlightenment. And to be in darkness is to be cut off from that life and light that God brings. It's to be afraid, confused, and alone. To be in outer darkness is to be where God's light is not. And so often our souls want to be where God's light is not. Uh, uh, At John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Jesus says this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Guys, none of us want our dark deeds to be exposed. None of us. It's why we hide in shame, and we don't want to talk about them, and we lie about them, and we blame other people for places we fail, because we know how bad we are deep down in our hearts when we're honest about it. Sometimes we will do something we know we shouldn't do and God will come and he will talk to us and the spirit of God will hold us. We'll feel a little bit of guilt that God's calling us back to him. But the more we do those things, the harder our hearts become. Like I I knew someone who was sleeping with a married man and I remember the first few times this happened, they were broken down and in tears and just four months later because they were, it's sad, but they didn't stop. And four months later they came to me and they said, why isn't God okay with it? That's 
the scriptures calls this our conscience is being seared. When you talk about fire, the conscience is being seared. Why is God not, God not okay with it? Because God's not dumb, number one, but you know, it's because it's terrible. That's the progression. Your conscience gets dull. It gets harder. It doesn't bother you anymore. You slowly find yourself becoming a soul that lies and hates and hoards and judges and lusts and hurts and gossips all without ceasing and without the slightest concern you're doing anything wrong at all. That's outer darkness. That's hell. That's hell. Do you understand there will not be people in hell who are waiting to repent and God is like, nope, you missed your chance. You're done. Jesus says, Matthew 13, 42, in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell is where God gives people over to their sin, into their, into their self-righteousness, into all that they are. God gives people over. Your will is completely centered upon yourself. In hell, you get all you, all you. Which I think even now today it's a good question to have friends ask us is how self-centered scale 1 to 10 do you think I am? And then be honest enough to let them tell you and don't get all offended because that just means you're really self-centered. So there you go. Uh, hell, your desire, your appetites completely overwhelm your will. And this can start here and now. And this is why I think C.S. Lewis said all the doors of hell are locked on the inside. We lock ourselves in. We don't want to let God in or anybody else in. We want to be completely self-focused on ourselves. Anybody ever see the movie or read the book, The Lord of the Rings? Okay, the movie's about a, you know, a little over a decade old. The book's way older than that, so I'm going to give you some spoilers coming. Don't get irritated at me because it's old. Okay, There's this character in the movie and the book named Gollum. His whole life is about getting this thing called his precious, my precious, right? his, his ring. My, my, my Gollum and my Yoda sound exactly the same. Uh, okay. <laughs> The ring turns him, and this, I don't know if it's in the movie because I fell asleep, but uh, in, in the book, <laughs> it's long, okay? It's like nine hours in. Um, the ring turns him from once was a hobbit, essentially a person, into something that's hardly recognizable anymore. And yet the ring brought him no joy. And there's a point in the book, I don't know what happens in the movie, there's a point in the book where he actually gets the ring. And he is so deformed from his obsession that he can no longer even wear the ring anymore. He can't even get it on his finger. Imagine an addiction so severe that even momentary bursts of gratification are gone and all that's left is slavery to a hunger that can never be satisfied. That's, that's hell. This gnashing of teeth. You don't want anything to do with God. Uh, I was reading this book this week and, and a guy says that addiction is something that almost satisfies and so you keep thinking, well, I just need more of that, and then it'll satisfy. I just need more of that. You become so focused on this thing that your heart and your life and your soul and all that you are is so deformed and twisted, and you're gnashing, and God comes in, and you're like, I'm not going to, and that's gnashing of teeth. It's all you. How about fire? Hell is fire. When I was a kid, uh, my aunt told me that if I didn't believe in Jesus, I'd burn in hell. And I'm like, what does that mean? And she says, have you ever touched a hot stove? And I said, yeah. She goes, what did you do? I said, pull my hand away. She goes, imagine you couldn't pull your hand away. And it was all over your body all the time and you couldn't get away. I would buy whatever she was selling at that moment, right? Because I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And so I, I prayed this prayer. She said, pray this prayer. And I prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer every day for five years. I prayed that prayer when I was loaded, driving my car home from a party. I'd pray this prayer. That prayer meant nothing. It was like fire insurance. It wasn't about real relationship with God. I became a believer when I was 17 years old, and I had prayed that prayer for five years. I prayed it one more time when I became a believer, and I never prayed it again. Because God comes, and God rescues me, and God saves me. 
See, when it talks about fire here, fire references judgment. And I don't say that to make hell more palatable, but to be biblically accurate. If, if hell is outer darkness and it's so deep and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, how is there fire bright, brightening things up? Hell is not a sauna, okay? It's not the eternal place where you go to lose your weight you can never lose in this life, okay? It's not what it is. When it comes to teaching about the afterlife, heaven and hell, the Bible uses all these metaphors, this figurative language to talk about the reality of what it is. Like if you had to describe a smartphone or internet to somebody from the Middle Ages, you would have to do it in metaphors because they wouldn't understand it. This is what the Bible does many times when it talks about the afterlife. Uh, sometimes it's very explicit. Like, like John will say in the book of Revelation that in heaven that uh, the saints will wear fine linen. That is not talking about what fashion is going to be like one day. Oh, it's fine linen. That's what's in. Project Runway is going to do shows about the fine linen. No, no. Uh, Revelation 19 uh, verse 8 says, The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What it's telling you is this is a way of saying you get to have a perfectly clean conscience that we can actually do and live in and be the people God is calling us to be. That's what heaven will be like, life with him. It's why C.S. Lewis wrote this. There is no need to be worried about facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. All the scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, and so on, is, of course, a merely symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. Okay? So metaphors, metaphors. Again, heaven and hell, I believe, are real places. They're not metaphors, but it's trying to explain what happens in these places. Heaven is about life with God. And the reality of hell is the opposite, life without him. The reality that fire points to is real. Fire is an image of destruction. Fire was generally used to destroy something that was offensive to God's holiness. So if you brought a sin sacrifice to the temple, it would typically be burned with fire. That's what it's pointing to. And I think just like entering heaven is to essentially, in this life, we start to become more human. Who God actually made us to be, to live as his children. Starts on earth and it goes on into eternity. I think to be cast into hell, into hell could be the exact same thing in the opposite way where you're hardly human at all. You become less and less the image bearer that God made you to be. We become cut off from God who is our source of life and that means cut off from the image of God who, that we were created in. And all that's left of us is what remains when God's image is gone. That's hell. Is hell made up of physical fire and brimstone? I don't think so. You can disagree. It's not a salvation issue. You know, whatever. I think hell, personally to me, is so much worse than that. It really is. I think hell is not just about what happens to us. I think hell is what happens in us. Now into eternity. It's not just that you're trapped in bad circumstances that you wish you could get away from. I've got to pull my hand off of the stove. You're trapped inside of you. And you finally fully have free reign to indulge all those appetites that you wanted to give your soul to that's become your God. You get to be Lord of your own flies. That's what you get. And imagine that extended out into all eternity. That's, that's hell. And I think that's the teaching about a real possibility of our souls and where they can go. Uh, let me give you some good news, okay? Because I know it's like, this is a real bummer. Uh, let me give you some good news, okay? Jesus has come to rescue us. From us, from all the places that we have run to that have made where we want to run from God and lock our doors, Jesus has come to rescue us from that. He says, I stand at the door and knock. What door is that? Your door that you've locked from the inside. He's knocking. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 5, 8, I quote this to you all the time. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we're running from Him, while we're doing our own thing, while we're self-focused, while we're making our own hell hotter, darker, deeper, more sorrowful, Jesus came. And He suffered for what we brought about. And He died for our sin to bring us back into relationship with God again, that we can have a redemptive life. It is made available to us because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has made a way to life with God. See, the object of hell is not to scare you into getting fire insurance when your aunt you know, yells at you when you're 12 years old for no apparent reason. Hell is God really holding up who we are in the end without him. That's who we are. There's this really wise woman back in 2 Samuel 14, 14. She's talking to the king and she says, we, all, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take life away and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Because we are the ones who have banished ourselves. We have run away. And God brings means that the banished ones, us, no longer have to remain outcasts. We don't have to live apart from Him for eternity. We can actually live with Him because of what Christ has done for eternity. And start today and go on forever. We find our lives in Jesus over and above everything else. And this is why the church has said this thing, and it sounds so old and cheesy nowadays, right? But we say this thing, Jesus saves, right? It sounds so old and out of date, but it's really the only truth that really stands the test of time. The only good news that's been proclaimed for over 2,000 years, against all odds, including us, Jesus saves. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of what God does to rescue us because we are a people who become Lord of our own flies in our lives. We build, we build this reality around ourselves and we tell ourselves what is true. And God comes in and he says, your reality is a false one. It is built upon you and it's all going to fall apart. Trust me and step into a relationship with me and I will lead you into real and true and new life. This is what the good news of the gospel brings about. This is why we talk about communion every week at Element, where you break that cracker. It represents Christ's body that was broken for us, for all the brokenness that we had brought. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It represents his blood that was shed for you and me as a reminder that Christ shed his blood for us. That what we did in our lives is we deserve and have run after an eternity apart from him. We have loved and longed for a real and literal hell. And yet Jesus comes to rescue us from ourselves by his own death and resurrection. That all that separates us from relationship with God is taken care of in what Jesus did to rescue us. And so we trust him and we surrender our lives to him. and We get to live out a life now of redemptive grace and hope. The band's going to come up. As I do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There's going to be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if, if you're in a place right now and you just thought you're trying to work your way into heaven and work off hell so you don't have to go there to this thing, and, and maybe you get a different idea of, of the, what this is, and you actually want life in a relationship with God, they would love to pray with you about that this morning. They would love to talk to you about the good news of what the gospel actually brings. Guys, the the good news is not that one day you will die and go to a place called heaven and get everything you ever wanted. The good news is that our God has come to rescue us. And he steps into relationship with us today. And that goes on. And and we we stumble and fall all the time. Guys, the good news is that God is like, okay, I'm going to lift you up and we're going to keep going. Because this is what God does. He continues to rescue and save. And so I would encourage you to have a proper understanding of of heaven and hell and what it's actually meant to be. We're not striving to get to a place. We want to be a people who don't strive, but we sit back and rest in the relationship that God has brought to us. 
And as we live in that relationship, our whole mindset begins to change. We begin to live out in reality the good news of the rescue that we have received. Because our God is good. And Jesus saves us from the hell that we have sought after. Uh, There are offering boxes next to every single door, and we give because Jesus gave so much to us. It's part of our worship, so we give back. Uh, There's food outside. I invite you to grab something to eat, grab some sermon notes, maybe hang out with some people this week, and talk about the ideas of heaven and hell, and maybe how you've thought about them, and maybe the reality of it being a little bit different, and then uh, maybe some ways that you continue to seek after your own hell and some reality you built for yourself where you tell yourself a bunch of lies that are true, but they're not true where God wants to come in and strip that all down and begin to build you up in a place where you understand the reality of who he is and what he calls us into as a free and redeemed and saved people who get to live the idea of eternal life and heaven that starts today and goes on into eternity. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us as a people what it means to live in relationship with you, uh, that we would trust you for what you have provided to us, that we would see you in the midst of the places that we are even unsure, but you would bring to us today a better vision and view of the lies that we have built around ourselves, of how we are seeking ourselves in so many things, even sometimes when we say we're seeking you. Father, thank you that the reality of a future hope of a place called heaven isn't just about harps and singing songs, but the reality is how it is life with you. And that it is something we can experience even now, today. And I ask that you would give us a sense of urgency in how we talk about the ideas of heaven and hell. And that how we always want to make them into these ideas of these places where we get or don't get things. And yet the reality is so much different and so much more clear. Teach us to be those who walk in relationship with you, who trust you, And that we would understand that you are the one who holds us and doesn't let us go. You are the one who holds us. So teach us to rest in that holding. And then begin to live out a life day by day, trusting you for the eternal life that you bring us. And that our lives would look different to this world. And that people would see the gracious goodness of who you are by how we begin to love you back because you first loved us. Thank you for being so gracious and good to us as a people. And we ask all that we have this morning in your good name. Amen.